everybody, I'm Robert Cannon, and this is Figure of Speech, a podcast dedicated to the impact of forensics. Episode 24, Blake Longfellow. Blake, welcome in, buddy. How you doing? Doing well, Rob. Thanks very much for having me, man. Big fan of the show. Oh, thanks Looking so much. Forward. Yeah, it's great having you. I'm I'm glad that we have you in here. I'm so, I wish that this was uh, in person, man. You're always a, a delight to have and, and to talk to, but you know, with all the uh, lockdown stuff going on, I guess we're going to have to do this remotely. Uh, we should also note that you're in a different uh, a different county than I am. Same state, but different county. So that yeah. that affects Again, things too. Seven hours apart. Right. So, uh, Blake, you competed from what years? When did you start competing? When did you end competing? Uh, I got involved in forensics my sophomore year of high school was when I started. And then competed until 2012, grad school 2014, and then been coaching since 2016. Okay. And so let's start at the beginning. Let's start, I guess, with your sophomore year in high school. How did you get involved? How did you get started with speech and debate? Yeah, I'd been, I'd been doing theater, like a lot of the folks that have come on the show. Mm-hmm. I, I came from the theater world originally, and I was doing that through elementary school, through middle school. But, you know, I'm also a pretty tall dude. I'm six foot seven, just much like yourself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, sports played a big role in my life growing up. So I was playing basketball and swimming and football. And that was always kind of the trade-off as I was allowed to do theater as long as I continued, you know, playing those sports to make, make my father happy. And I guess after freshman year of high school is when I kind of made the decision that sports weren't going to be for me, that I think I, if I remember there was an alumni at my high school who had become paralyzed by playing football and I just kind of had the epiphany that that wasn't a career that had much longevity and wasn't really something I was interested in, in chasing. So uh, so you, you thought you could be a, a drama nerd instead? <laughs> well, I, mean, I continued doing theater the whole time. Oh. I really enjoyed theater. Uh, not, not even necessarily the dramatic acting. I really enjoyed improv and I really enjoyed making people laugh. And so I think once I found speech and debate, I found that it was a lot of the things that I enjoyed of theater, of being on stage and having that platform and being able to kind of you know, entertain an audience without some of the stuff that I, I struggled with with theater. And, uh, you know, the, the nuances of being in theater. So, uh, but that is how I got into speech and debate is from theater. My sophomore year, I had a new theater teacher at our high school who had come from Texas and he was in the UIL league out in Texas, which is a really strong high school league. And he forced us, this is Chuck Perryman at San Juan Valley high school. He forced us to do duo as theater kids because, Hmm he viewed it as great fourth wall practice and kind of developing that fourth wall skill mm-hmm. of looking at the audience, but envisioning something else there. And he was right. It was a really good experience. We were going to these tournaments and uh, getting our butts kicked. We're in a really competitive <laughs> league with James Logan high school, Monta Vista high school, Doherty Valley high school. Uh, you know, these are schools that are known. The yeah. Well, they're still, they're still legends, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, this is like peak Tommy Lindsay era of James Logan High School where they're just crushing everything and taking like 95% of the state national qualifiers from this district. But there's other schools too, like Monta Vista, Miramani, Doherty Valley. They all nowadays have national finalists every year. So, so wait, let, let's, let's hold up one second. Let me go back. So you start out with Duo. Is that your first event that you end up doing? Yeah, and that's the only event I did all through high school. 
Wow. I, I dealt with a little bit in HI. Me and some friends had gone to watch an HI round, and we were like, oh, that's pretty cool. And so that's we, we interesting. A little bit, but I never went to a tournament with it. So, so do, you, do you remember your first duo piece? Do you remember what you did? Yeah, so it's funny, man. We, I mean, you know, high school duo, there's all these sound effects. And at the time, you know, right. I remember there was like Clue, the duo. <laughs> um, all these like very techie performative duos. And, you know, here we are theater kids doing, <laughs> I did All My Sons by Arthur Miller. <laughs> which is great. It was a really powerful script and it, it went really well. But, you know, we didn't have the same kind of blocking that these other schools had. We yeah. didn't have any of insight on like how to move around each other and use kind of the unique medium of duo you know it's it's not like theater and it's not like any other performance medium when you see duo for the first time i think most people have that reaction of i've never seen anything like this and we didn't really have our heads wrapped around those nuances yet so we were just two people up there doing scenes but cut in half looking at the audience you know yeah and it, it just kind of it sounds like that's more you were doing it more like subtle and subdued. Meanwhile, you've got everybody else dancing like clowns around you. And, uh, you know, I, I just, I remember the first time I saw Andy Stone and Eric Dern do Transformers from Arizona State. And it was just like, what is this? And it was, there was so much movement and so much action going on. And I loved it. Like, I'm, I'm not knocking it, but it was a far cry from some of the other duos that were, um, that were going on. That's at the collegiate level. So I can only imagine what the difference might be. You're absolutely right. That's funny you mentioned the Transformers duo. I think a lot of people that that duo was kind of a pivotal moment for them. Yeah. Where they, you know, their minds were brought into what duo could be mm-hmm. and what you can accomplish with the blocking there. Uh, going back to the high school, I, I think my junior or senior year as a theater department, we kind of sat down and had a come to Jesus moment with our teacher where he basically said, okay, so we've gotten our feet wet in the speech and debate thing. We kind of understand it we're doing theater in speech and debate, that's not necessarily leading to competitive success. And so sat down and had kind of a discussion of what do we want to do? Do we want to continue doing our art form of theater in the forensics world? Or do we want to try our hand at some of these more performative techie duos? And almost unanimously, unanimously, all these theater kids were like, no, we, we want to maintain the art. Like what they're doing isn't real acting and you know, all this kind of arrogance about it. And meanwhile, I was like, I've never seen anything like that. That was cool as shit. <laughs> I don't know that. And so my senior year came back with, um, uh, God, what do we do? A complete works of Shakespeare bridge. Oh yeah. 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 I remember that. Yeah. And that, that kind of struck a middle ground where we were doing a theater piece, made my theater director happy, but I could experiment a little bit with right. these, uh, you know, forensics performance elements and, we did really well. We actually qualified for state uh, over the James Logan duos and all that, which was unbelievably hard, but we weren't able to go because state that year conflicted with a huge theater festival that our department was really um, geared towards going, right? That was kind of the pinnacle of our whole season. So was it, qualified for state in high school, never went. Well, let me ask you a quick question. Was it, you said that like by your senior year, they had kind of taken stock of in their their ability to compete does that mean that when you were a sophomore, that's when they first started going to these tournaments? Because that's what it sounds like is these are troubles of a new team that don't really know the format. Is that what was going on? Correct. Yeah, it was a, a new theater teacher my sophomore year, and he had come in with some speech and debate background. Mm. So he one who kind of introduced us to it. Okay, so he comes in and says, let's try this thing, and we try it, and then I say we, you, you tried it. Uh, and then it was kind of like, well, 
we're not winning there. Is that what we want to keep doing? And then he's kind of calling that into question. You're, you fell in love. Yeah. I mean, I found that I was, you know, I was having success there. I felt like it was different than anything I'd ever seen. I enjoyed maybe the immediate gratification of going to a tournament, receiving an award and going home as opposed to, you know, rehearsing for months, going up, doing a play, and you don't really know what people thought about it. Everyone tells you that you did a great job, even if it was terrible. Yeah. I, I think going to a tournament and having a little bit more, still subjective, but a little bit more objective measure of how you did, I really enjoyed that aspect of it, you know? Mm. So when you're done with high school, now you said you did only duo, did you say you did a cup? you did HI occasionally? Is that what you said? I, I kind of experimented with it, but never went to a tournament. Oh, okay. So I, I tried to cut a couple pieces, had memorized one or two, but just never got up and went to a tournament. Never got it up. Okay. So when you're done with high school, what happens then? How do you get into college forensics? Yeah. So I guess for that, I got to back up a little bit. Uh, you, you've had Shadavari on your show before. I have. I've had him in my life. I've had him, <laughs> I've had him in my lap. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think most of us have. If you know Shadavari, he... Uh, <laughs> He hops from lap to lap quite. He's a lap sitter. Yeah. So, so Shaw and I go back before either of us knew what forensics was. I met Shaw Devari when I was in eighth grade. I'm so sorry. Job. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, I, I got my first job at a skating rink in Northern California called the Golden Skate. And I had been working there for a couple months. Shaw Devari started working there and we chatted a little bit. He got a job there for a week because there was a girl who worked there that of he wanted course. a date so rather than just asking for a date, he asked for a job, got the job, worked for a week, got the date, and then quit. <laughs> this is eighth but grade? This is eighth this grade? Is eighth grade. He is a junior in high school. Oh, okay. Okay. So, uh, but in that time, he, he had given me a, a couple pointers about uh, how to talk to women and just had already kind of stepped into a little bit of like big brother mentorship role for me in that short moment. Mm. And then a year later, when I got to high school, he ended up being my teacher's aide for my freshman theater class. Ah, uh, I see. And him and I got to know each other a little bit that, that year. He had helped work, work with me on a few pieces for theater throughout the year. And then on the last day of the semester, he asked, um, he had asked me if I want to come play poker with him and some other seniors. And I did. We became friends with poker, which eventually... Um, led throughout the whole summer and then because back then this is like 2000 what five 2004 mm-hmm. and world series of poker is the biggest thing on ESPN at the time right right um so we're playing poker and then we end up going to the same summer camp he's working as a counselor i'm still a camper at this camp and we got to know each other more there and so through that camp and through playing poker over the summer and through theater we just kind of stayed in touch all throughout high school and then my senior year um you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do yet. I'd gotten into a couple of schools, but none that I was super excited about going to. And I didn't really have the grades for UCLA or UC Berkeley, which is where I wanted to go. And when Shaw had found out that I had done some speech and debate, he jumped on it and convinced me to move down to Southern California and go to Orange Coast College. By that point, he had found speech and debate. He had done great things at OCC, won a, a team sweepstakes title at Fire Up High. And you know, now was kind of recruiting the next wave of folks. And so he recruited me to go down to OCC and literally came to my house, sat in my living room with my mother, like a, a college football coach and <laughs> gave her the 
you know, he will look after me down there in Southern California. So and, that, that and so you went. There. Yeah. Yeah. So I went. It was great. Best decision I ever made. You know, opened up all these doors for me, introduced me to this activity. I, I did forensics in high school, but I didn't really like it because high school forensics is really political. Yeah. And I don't know, students are kind of toxic towards each other. At, at that time, James Logan did this weird thing where they would sit in a room during the whole tournament separate from everyone. And then when postings went up, you know, back then we had physical postings you have to go look at. So when postings comes, came up, they would come marching out of their room in like a two- by two single file line mm. all the way out and people would chant the death star song like dun 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 right and i don't know that was just like not really a an environment that i enjoyed to this day i'm not a huge fan of high school forensics sometimes for that reason that i think it still has a lot of that you know I, let's let's go off on a side sidebar for a moment a little tangent yeah. because it's true i've i've said this on on the podcast before um I don't prefer high school forensics and I think it's part of it is just that it's so big, you know, some people do it. That's what starts to politicize it. You got a lot of money that's being traded around for all the, you know, the different camps and, and mm -hmm. nationals. And there's, there's a lot of potential there because a lot of people want to do it. And it's too bad because the activity could be so much greater than it is. And I mean, I, th I think some people would argue with me and say, no, it's already great. But I think the political nature of what you're talking about and how, uh, the same people are winning, even though this may not be what they, what, you know, they may not be the best in the round, but oftentimes their coaches have influence uh, or they, they just have reputation. And I don't find that as much at the other levels. I don't find that as much at the middle school or elementary level. I don't find that as much at the college level. Um, and I just feel like it really disinterests me to work with high school. Am I off, off target in your line of, of view? Do you think that's a, an appropriate thing to say? No, I think you're, you're completely right. Uh, I think that turns a lot of really talented coaches off. I, I think about Robert Hawkins, the, the DOF here at Diablo Valley College with me, who was a high school coach for 10 years and had state finalists almost every year during that time and was a phenomenal coach, but eventually just got tired of, you know, trying to keep other coaches from cheating and right. <laughs> all the, the nonsense that goes on at that level. So I, I also think there's issues at the high school level with, you know, when you have parents as your judges and it's a constantly changing pool of judges that changes the activity, right? It's your audience. It's all communication. So who your judging pool is matters. And I think that because throughout the whole season, it's often parents, you end up with students having to play the lowest common denominator quite a bit. Whereas in college, all of our judges are usually people with, you know, master's degrees and PhDs, or at least years of experience in the activity. And we get a different type of product and different type of messages because of that. And the last thing is that I think there's just immense inequality in and in inequity at the high school level that you have private school teams with, you know, two events per coach. You have coaches that are just there to coach like cross-examination in one form of debate mm -hmm. as compared to the, you know, the public school down the street that has one coach who's also a leadership teacher and an English teacher and is trying to make it work on the weekends, you know? Yeah. And, and I, that just doesn't really, you know, watching, a, watching a bunch of money compete against a bunch of teams without money is, it kills the activity in the long run. Well, I, I like some of that. I mean, because it does make things interesting and it provides for underdog stories. And I think you get that at the college level quite a bit. I mean, yeah. um, you, you see some teams that are student run, and you see some teams that have 
a ton of money. I mean, uh, you know, Western Kentucky, for example, they have a lot of money and that's not a secret. Um, but at the same time, I feel like there's also this, um, this professionalism that goes along with it. And even teams that have a lot of money are respectful to the teams that don't have a lot of money. And I feel like at the high school level, that doesn't always happen. It's kind of looking down their nose a little bit more. It's a little bit more elitist, or at least it seems that way. Yeah, totally. As, as we'll get into, I, I am a big school guy. My entire career was at big teams and including Western Kentucky. And I do believe that having a Western Kentucky or a school like that, you know, whatever level you're at, is a great reference point for other schools to point to. Mm-hmm. Say, well, why aren't we winning a national championship? Well, because our competition has 25 times the amount of funding we do and 10 times the amount of coaches. The fact that we're even close is, you know, an amazing feat. And so I, I think it's good to have as a reference point. Yeah. I would like every program to be at that level. I, I think we often in this activity have a mentality, like a crabs in a barrel mentality where when one team has success, our instinct is to tear them down rather than to bring everybody else up. And I think that creates a ton of other problems in our activity. That's why we never really make progress. And that's also why it's every level of this activity is dominated by three or four teams. Yeah, I mean, I've been in big teams. My high school team was uh, was huge. We only had one coach, but we really started coaching each other. And we, we probably would take at least 30 people per tournament, you know, and we would just come in and just crush. And I've been on those big teams. I've been on... I've been on small teams, micro teams. I've been the only person on my team for a while. And I know what all of those differences are. And I think, I mean, there's benefits to all of them, right? And I think you're absolutely right. Like having that reference point of having the stellar team, it's really, it's reassuring to teams that have some modicum of success that they can point to and say, exactly as you were pointing out, hey, we did well compared to them because they have so much more in terms of resources and and uh, experience and things like that. So I think you're right. I think it's a good point. So it's a good reference point for the other teams to take into consideration. Yeah, I got a lot of thoughts on, on what we got to do to make this activity more fair, but we can get into those later, I guess. Well, let's get back to you. So you're now down at Orange County. And yeah. how does that I'm play out? Yeah, I'm at Orange Coast College. And, you know, I had an amazing coaching staff ahead of me. I had Ben Lohman, who's a, a three-time AFA and NFA champion and interstate oratory champion from Bradley. He ends up kind of becoming my my forensics mentor along with Shadavari. Then I also have Courtney Anderson, who is an AFA individual sweepstakes winner out of George Mason, plus you know, Chris Tessera, Felicia Coco, Sean O'Rourke, um, Lucas Ochoa. You know, just had phenomenal coaching all through OCC. So was very blessed mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it was an awesome year. I, I, my first event when I got to the college level was pros and I, I did all right in that. I enjoyed that. But very sh- shortly after that, my second event was ADS. And that's where I feel like I really kind of found my home. And that's where my, my forensics career kind of started to take off. That was my first really successful speech. That's definitely where I re- first remember you was in ADS. I remember like, I remember seeing you at tournaments and, um, <laughs> we're both you're a little bit taller than i am but we're both tall skinny white guys and there was also sean connor and all three of us when we would stand together i just remember several times being like oh my gosh we're all looking at each other in terms of eye contact we we don't have to stoop down to talk to each other uh but i remember thinking hey all three of us do ads quite a bit Mm -hmm. and it was a it was really interesting to go in some of those rounds and just see the super tall skinny white guys in the ads rounds 
um, and I I feel felt a kinship to you for some reason. I don't know what that is, but I remember seeing you do these ADSs and being blown away by how funny they were. And uh, and, and talk about that a little bit. Tell me about your ADS experiences. Uh, you know, ADS was a blast. It, there's very rare in life that you get ten minutes with a captive audience that isn't going to interrupt you, and you get to share the message that you want. And that you know that speaks to any event. But then ADS. I feel like even in your best moments of, of making jokes in real life and stuff, you know, other people jumped in and, and it's more of like a, a dialogue. Whereas ADS was the closest thing I've ever gotten to stand up comedy, you know, mm-hmm. and just having a microphone and a platform like that for, for 10 minutes. So that, that was super fun. I like to say that ADS is the hardest prelim, but the most rewarding final. Some of those prelims in ADS, you know, you're, you're full committing to a joke that just falls flat and you have to have tough skin and just move on to the next one. And, yeah, it's, it's 8 a.m. and the judge has a hangover and they're nursing a coffee cup and they do not want to be there. They don't want to laugh. Yeah, the one that, that stands out most vividly was my last NFA. I had a like 7.30 or 8 p.m. ADS round and the judge has given you the look the whole time of like, come on, if, if you do this speech a double time so we can all go home faster, I'll give you a, give you a bonus. <laughs> ADS was a blast. I had a really good time with that. Uh, let's see, freshman year, I... I also did duo with Priscilla Saavedra and then a reader's theater, which was with Sean Connor. So it was with me, Sean Connor and the reader's theater. And then another guy, Kevin Castleman, if you remember him. Oh yeah. A pretty tall, skinny white guy. Yeah. Tall, skinny white guys. And so the three of us were in a reader's theater. And I think that's what helped make that one work is that we all had this aesthetic of, you know, we, we tricked members of the team into thinking we were our brothers. We all look so much alike. And so putting us all in a theater uh, worked pretty well. And that, that speech did really well. We picked at Fence State that year. We won Art of that year. We won the Audience Award that year. Um, yeah, that was one of the... And I think to this day that that theater's still on the cover of the Art of brochure. That's great. Yeah, let's talk about Reader's Theater for a minute. I don't think that's something that we've talked about on this podcast, about Arda. And I think mean, it might be one of those... Forensic? Say it again. You mean the best event in forensics? Yeah, I think it's also one of the least well-known events in mm-hmm. forensics that's that's actually offered. You know, I mean, there's some yeah, events that are that are super rare. Sorry, I keep on cutting you off. That's sorry. okay. Yeah, just saying that you know, there's some events that are super rare that you never see except for one tournament a year, and that's not really what I'm talking about. But I mean, Reader's Theater is offered at, at multiple tournaments, uh, primarily in Southern California, and the um, the Arda Nationals happens in Southern California every year. Talk a little bit about Reader's Theater. Tell us about it. Yeah, you're right. It used to be very popular. When I competed, was actually the peak of it for community colleges. And in 2009, my last year at OCC, there was 27 Reader's Theaters entered. And last year at Fire Pie, there was, I think, seven or eight. Mm. So we've seen a really massive decline in it over the last decade. I think there's a lot of factors related to that. And there's, you know, a huge effort by people like myself. Shadavari is kind of the main one. He's, he's done tremendous work to try and help revive the event, but it's an amazing event. It's 25 minutes. I would describe it as persuasion meets POI meets after dinner speaking meets duo because you have three people in it. Uh, well, at least three, you could have what up to 15. Uh, yeah. I think Arda's rules are up to 14. Um, I've, I've seen five, six before, yeah. But I, I think it's the best event because there really are no rules. Even beyond 25 minutes, you're allowed to approach the, away, the event any way you want. Yeah, There is no real right way to do it. You know, it's kind of a, a creative process 
from the beginning every time. And, and they're, uh, they're a student the most out of it that this year, I can't tell you. So last year was the first year that DVC where I coach now offered the event. We, we entered in the event and this year we had huge numbers of enrollment and registration for our team. And a ton of which say that they saw the reader's theater at the public showcase and said, I want to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's why they joined the team. And then I had to tell them, sorry, only three people get to be in it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, there's also some some arguments about the philosophy behind Reader's Theater, whether costumes should be allowed or props or things like that. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's that's some of the conversation right now around saving the event that that is what makes the event unique is that it does have costumes. It does usually have a small set and maybe even props. And that violates the norms of most of our other interp events, right? Most events explicitly forbid that. Whereas in Reader's Theater, if you don't have that, you look like you don't know what you're doing. And so that that is unusual for a lot of people. I will say, I actually think that's one thing that we should move away from. I think that's one thing we could do to try and save the event is to uh, maybe put in rules rules in place about what is allowed for sets. Because some of these sets are getting bigger and bigger each year, hmm. which then I think scares off young coaches that... If you go see, you know, one of these Orange Coast College or Mount San Antonio College readers theaters with this unbelievable blocking and singing and dancing and costuming and sets, if I'm a young coach, I think, well, that's not my skill set. I know, I know how to write persuasions, but I'm not a set designer. Mm-hmm. I'm not a costume designer. I don't know how to do that. And I think that's part of why the activity is dying. Is the thing that makes it unique is also what's killing it. So I think we gotta we gotta rethink the costumes. We gotta rethink the sets. Um, do you think that would happen? I think we have to, Hmm. you know, like I said, we went from 27 a decade ago down to seven. And so I I think it's adapt or die time. And so I I would rather see that happen and see the event change before it dies and give it a shot rather than just see it die. Hmm. Well, let's get back to your sophomore year. Now you were telling me, I mean, you had a, a very successful freshman year. What happens your sophomore year? Yeah. So, so freshman year, I'm coming back from doing Reader's Theater and STE. I had also golded at Fire Pie and at State. So I knew that was the event that I, I wanted to do again. So that would, uh, your freshman year would have been 2007, 2008. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Yeah. So that, that's 2007, 2008. So I knew I wanted to do those events again. So I get my ADS up right at the start of the year. Um, let's see. Sophomore year, I do persuasion and poi so i dropped pros and duo picked up persuasion and poi um both of those end up being very successful i ended up golding both persuasion and poi at state and nationals uh reader Theater did really well we did well at state at faro pie and then made the final at arda again after dinner speaking um made the final i think i got a silver with that and yeah so so that sophomore year at occ is kind of the big year right that's where i feel like Things clicked for me. I really started to understand the activity. Keep in mind this whole time I'm living with Shah Davari and his brother in Costa Mesa. <laughs> While he's doing everything he's doing at Long Beach and at Irvine and with you. And so I'm, I have this awesome four-year level competitor mentor living with me, helping coach me through all this. So right. I, I'm grateful to Shah with that. Plus all these amazing coaches I mentioned. So uh, yeah, so sophomore year, big year, very successful. Um uh, was I think the number two community college competitor in the country. The Bavero that year went to Justin Harris from Moore Park, but he did mostly debate events. So I consider myself the top IE competitor of that year. Okay. 
Um, also won the Student Fellowship Award, won the Reader's Theater, uh, was it Huffer Goldman Award? Um, I feel like there's one other one I can't think of, but yeah. That's quite the resume. So that sets you up pretty perfectly. And where do you go, I mean, after community college? Yeah, so Sal Tinajero out of, at that time, he's still coaching at Fullerton Union High School. He gets word of, you know, the, the season I had had at OCC, and he's also an OCC and, and a Bradley alum. And so he uh, takes the steps to get me to Bradley. And so I got a small scholarship there. Uh, Tyler Billman, who then went on to become a community college coach as well. He was the ADOF, and he's the one who uh, accepted me and gave, gave me that scholarship at, at Bradley. So I transferred out there and... Um, yeah, so, have, have an amazing time, man. I, I, so tell me so, about that. What's that like? You go to Bradley, right? And then what's that like? You said <laughs> you said you went to Bradley, right? Yeah, I, I did. Uh, it's it's something that I am incredibly grateful for. It has opened all the doors that I have available to me now, and I learned stuff about forensics that I never would have learned anywhere else and have a unique perspective I never would have gained anywhere else. I got access to not just amazing coaches, but the best alumni base in the world. And I had an experience that you can't have anywhere else and that there's, you know, at the four-year level and at the two-year level for that matter, there's only three teams that get to compete for individual sweepstakes every year, Mm -hmm. right? Only six teams have won AFA, only three teams have won it more than once. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem and we should be working towards solving that. But I often tell students when they ask if they want to go to Bradley or if they should go somewhere else, um, you know, I, I tell them that you'll get an experience of competing for team sweepstakes that you don't get at other schools. Mm-hmm. That, that competing for team sweepstakes does breed a team mindset that you don't get other places, right? That so much of this activity is about individual accolades that most students become very individualistic, even on bigger teams that, you know, students become very, like, egocentric. Yeah. Yeah. Me, me. And on the Bradley team, you know, one of the mottos is get on the steamroller or get out of the way that this team is making its way to a team sweeps national championship. Right. That is the only thing that matters. Everything else is a side effect. And if your objectives don't align with that, you're going to get steamrolled in the process because that's the only thing that matters. Right. So if you're someone who is being selfish, if you are someone who's not peer coaching, you know, Bradley only has two coaches, both of which have full teaching loads. And to be honest, don't coach that much. Like Dan Smith was a a phenomenal coach, but he only had a couple hours a week. And so the Bradley team is successful, not because of coaches or money, but because of peer coaching and alumni. Those are the only two things that they have culture of peer coaching and excellence and an alumni base that understands that and, and comes back frequently to give back. So I had an amazing experience there. I learned a ton, but man, it was tough. What was tough about it? Well, one year in Peoria, Illinois. Yeah. And it's cold as shit. Well, I, I went to school in Carbondale, Illinois. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I spent four years there. I, I mean, I, I was only there for two years. That was enough. It, it it was okay because you still have that like, Oh, I'm from California. The snow is like a novelty and it's so pretty and it's fun. And I'm having this cool experience of living in the snow. I, I think if I had gone there all four years, I would be sick of it. And God, if I love, if I grew up in Illinois, I can't imagine. But, <laughs> so the cold was really tough. That, that was a big adjustment phase. Um, I had come from a community college team where 
all of the people that were on our national teams were also really great friends outside of competition Mm -hmm. and we had amazing team culture whereas then at bradley when i got there the culture was a little messed up a senior class had just left that was really toxic and Mm. yeah sorry to name names but jared boyer amanda borrell patrick campbell phenomenal competitors the three of them took top three in indie sweeps at afa one two three which is unbelievable but they're also really really toxic people at times Mm. and so when I got to Bradley, the team culture had this mindset of, oh, that's what it takes to be successful. You have to be toxic to do that. And I had a little bit of culture clash at first with the the people that had been there a long time where I was like, why are you, you know, gossiping? Why are you whatever? And um, yeah, so it took a little while to kind of unpack that and to reform the culture there. But I think by my my senior year, we had figured that out. So just wrapped up, wrap up junior year, had an amazing year, uh, got my first couple big out rounds at AFA that year. Uh, I won uh, informative speaking at NFA that year. Yeah, because I remember you won, I won in 2009, I think you won in 2010, right? Yeah, I think yeah. Marcus won the year before that. Mm. Or did he win AFA year? He year, won year? AFA 2009, I won NFA, and then I, you won NFA right after me, I think. Because I I remember uh, looking at the list later on and being like, oh Blake, like I didn't I didn't get word of it at the time. It wasn't until later that I saw the list and was like, oh Blake's name is on there. So I I was like, oh that's awesome. Like I I was a huge fan of yours and I was like, this it's wonderful. Like I felt so proud to know you and be like, I love that guy. Yeah, thanks man. Right back at you. I had the same kind of reaction when you and Marcus won. Mm-hmm. Uh, feeling like you know we're community college kids who are doing it at the four year level and we're showing that there is value in the community college circuit. Right. It wasn't all just this name recognition of people that had been at big teams for four years that yeah. announced they can kind of get their way in. So you win, um, you win nationals in 2010. And then what, how, what's your senior year like? 2011. I, I won 20. So 2011, cause I took a third year at OCC before oh, I transferred. My bad, my bad. Okay. So, so 20, 2011. 2011 was a great year. The only thing I want to say about that, and th- this leads into the uh, 2012 topic, is I had a great year and vastly outperformed my wildest dreams. I, I transferred to Bradley with the mindset that if I got into a, an AFA or NFA final in those two years, then it would all have been worth it and making that decision was the right choice. And, you know, I, I got the title my junior year, so it felt like I'd already accomplished that. But at AFA that year, I had broken the informative and I later found out that I was like the two or the three seed coming out of prelims, even though it was a speech I didn't really believe in at the time. And in the quarterfinal, which was my first big AFA quarterfinal, I had a huge memory blank. Mm. I, I blanked out for about like 20, 25 seconds and then picked it back up, continued through the speech. And I remember getting my ballots back and I took two, I took two 125 still in that round. I blinked for 30 seconds, still took two 125s, but I also took two sixes. And those sixes, when you read the ballots, they said, you were my first place, but you, you blanked. So I tell all that story to say that I, I looked at that and I saw those, those ballots and felt like, you know, I had really messed up because I didn't personally practice that speech enough because I didn't believe in it. Uh. And then when you look at the team sweepstakes of that year, 
if I, the person who ends up advancing out of that quarterfinal over me was from Western Kentucky, that person goes on to be in the final. So if I hadn't messed up, I would have advanced over that person. Even if I stop in semifinals, that point flip is enough that Bradley would have won the team sweepstakes title that year over Western Kentucky. Oh, man. So I, I wore that personally a lot, right? That was a very kind of formative moment in my speech and debate experience. It was the moment that I felt for the first time, like I really let my team down until then I had always kind of been the guy on my team that was carrying the points load. And this is a, a very clear moment where I could demonstrate that my lack of belief in the speech and my lack of preparation, the entire team. Yeah. So, so all that to say that coming back my senior year, I had, a very singular focus, and that was to win a Team Sweepstakes title for Bradley University. And at that point, Bradley hadn't won AFA, NFA since 1998. Mm-hmm. That was the last time that they had won both of them all through the 2000s. Uh, they had, you know, in 2005, they won a- AFA but lost NFA to Illinois State. In 2010, they won AFA but lost NFA to Western Kentucky. All the rest of them were won by Western Kentucky in between. Right. And so, you know, this is kind of we viewed 2012 as our year to reestablish Bradley as the premier forensics program in the country. And we had a singular mission. Our mantra that year was two and 12, <laughs> which, uh, you know, cause it was 2012 and we thought it was catchy, but it was enough of a rallying cry to give us kind of that singular focus on winning a team sweeps t- title, which we eventually went on to do. And we won both for the first time in 14 years. That's spectacular. And and so what do you feel like was your standout event that year? That was your last year for competition, right? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think the informative speech I did that year is the best speech I've ever done. Um, it, it ended up going back to the NFA final round again that year. And Marcus Hill actually ends up being a judge on that final round <laughs> panel. Uh, he comes up to me after the round and tells me it's the best speech he's ever seen. So it, it was an informative speech about the history of the words heterosexual and homosexual. And it tracked that origin and the spread of those words across the world through the invention of film and other media. And about it was about superior wharf hypothesis and how our language shapes our reality. And so it wasn't until we had words to define that kind of uh, sexual behavior to be, it wasn't until we have those words to define it that we could then not, you know, for bad, I'm not trying to say this is positive, but then was used to oppress people by having those definitions. Yeah. So I, I still think that's the best speech I ever did that it's the only speech I've ever seen that didn't cite any news sources. Every single source was a book in that speech, whether it was Michelle Foucault or Charles Darwin or whoever. And I think it was a, a great speech. That's interesting. That's re- I I don't think I've seen that speech, and uh, I I would. Do you have a recording of it? Because I'd like to see it. Yeah, I, I do. A couple of years ago, I guess 2017, I went to AFA uh, just to go watch because it was held at Bradley, and there was like a big alumni reunion. And Andrew Nalon from Ball State, who was also in that final round, I think he ends up getting second. He had come up to me and told me that he, you know, is now a public speaking professor and he uses my speech as a teaching example for his class all the time. Mm. And he admitted to me that he felt I should have won that round too. So I think a lot of competitors leave rounds. I feel like they should have won it. I am one who usually leaves it at the door and says, you know, whatever the result is, it is what it is. But my mantra is, oh, that person got their five, right? Or they right. got their three, they got the right three judges for that, for that final round. But that is the one speech that I, I feel like was ahead of its time. Mm. And 
Um, I don't know. I think I won that round, but I also think I was really tired and my delivery was a little flat. And that's also fair. One of the ballots said that, that they're like, I could tell this is a smart speech, but uh, you know, I like this other person's delivery better. You know, it's, it's funny. You're touching on something that I've said numerous times is that um, I don't think people fully understand the endurance that's needed in order to do speech and debate at a highly competitive level at nationals. And that that would go for high school, that goes for middle school, that goes for college level. The nationals, I mean, for NFA, they when when I was competing, they were still doing four round prelims. You you talk about doing four round prelims, and then there's like what four or five patterns. So you if you take a full load, I mean, you're that's insane. You're doing tons of of prelims. Then you've got quarters, you've got semis, you've got finals. And if you're highly competitive and you're making it out in a lot of those patterns, you're, you're just doing nothing but giving it all. And if you're trying to, again, compete at that high-end level, you're putting a lot of energy out every single performance, and it's just draining. And Yeah, yeah. man. My, my senior year, I'm doing, what, eight, nine events. I have two duos. I have Persuasion Informative, After Dinner Speaking, CA, uh, Impromptu, Extemp. <laughs> you know. It's crazy. <laughs> that 8 p.m. round and your five-hour energy shot has worn off by then you know oh yeah and you, and that's day after day after day. i mean uh, yeah day five of nfa and then your- one of the other problems i had when i like at afa i was the the national student rep so the day before all of that i had meetings all the on the morning that i was running for the students and then i had to go to the the coaches meeting in the afternoon so like my day before the tournament was shot and i was just like by the by the end of it, I was gassed. I was just, and my parents were both marathon runners and I always credit them for basically teaching me Mm. endurance because I, I had nothing left when I was done, but I mean, I I felt like I gave it my all in all of those rounds and I was just really trying to chug along. But yeah, you you talk about the endurance of this and it is definitely not to be um, understated how much energy you have to have. Yeah, one thing I would say to that is when I was at Bradley, I was fortunate enough to be on a team with Jacoby Cochran, who went on to be the most successful four-year-level competitor in the history of the activity with four individual sweepstakes titles. And if you talk to him about it, he'll be the first to tell you he was not the most talented. He's not even the best competitor. He was just the most consistent. Mm -hmm. And it's true. Never saw him have an off round, right? He was always, it wasn't always the best one in the round, but he was never lower than a two. Right. Well, and Shaw, Shaw Devari used to always say, like, two's break, two's win. Yeah, yeah and, two's win. Is, yeah. Is and I think there's some real truth to that. I mean, obviously, if you're picket fencing, then you're, you're not, you know, twos aren't winning at that point. But man, oh, man, if you're just going straight twos the entire time, you're doing pretty good. And you, you, yeah, you're going to be yeah, happy yeah, with the result. G won top speaker at AFA, but didn't win a, a single event that year. And I, I don't don't bring that up to rub it in her face. Just saying, you know, she won it with a bunch of second places. Right, right. So, when you're done with your senior year, what happens? Where do you go? Yeah. So in the uh, in the winter of that year, I had connected with some folks at Western Kentucky. Uh, I was aware that that was the best graduate stipend and graduate assistantship program that was available it was i don't know what it is today but at the time it was a full ride plus sixteen thousand dollars a year stipend and so 
while I wanted to come home, I had every intention of coming back home to Long Beach for graduate school, uh, not to further bury Trish after Jasmine McLeod put her in the grave earlier on the show, but Trish dropped the ball that I had reached out to Cal State Long Beach and told, you know, I was willing to turn down the full scholarship of Western Kentucky to take a half ride scholarship at Long Beach because I wanted to be back here so much. And she just didn't reach out to me until I saw her at AFA that year. And she came up to me and was like, Hey, what's up? Are you coming to Long Beach? And I was like, no, I haven't heard from you in four months. What are you talking about? So uh, ended up connecting with Western Kentucky and went there, which was highly contentious. There's a lot of Bradley folks that have a lot of ill will towards that program mm-hmm. and vice versa that there's a lot of bad blood there and in fact usually most years i think forbes does like a a top 10 college rivalries you've never heard of and that one gets brought up uh the the western kentucky bradley rivalry and so at the time i was only the second person in history to go from bradley to western kentucky for grad school and lost a lot of friends along the way to be honest wow like nowadays that we're all older we're, we're good and i had the mindset of if you don't understand me pursuing free education, then we view the world very differently. And, right. you know, we're not going to find common ground anyway. So, uh, yeah. So I ended up going to Western Kentucky and was there mostly coaching communication analysis. I uh, had a, a couple of great speeches there. One of my students got second at AFA in communication analysis, Richard Hain, who now also lives in the Bay area, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And, um, by the time I was done there, I was burnt out. You know, when I finished grad school, Shaw was trying to get me to come down and coach at OCC. There's a, a couple other schools asking if I would come to coach. And I just said, you know, I'm done with forensics. I'm ready to move on with my life and go do something else. I had always had a, a pretty entrepreneurial spirit. And so knew that I wanted to go into business and had this crazy opportunity. My last semester of grad school, where my childhood summer camp, the guy that had founded it was ready to move on and try and, and work in film. He had his master's in film from USC. So he wanted to go to work in the film industry and we worked out a, a deal where I could become co-owner of my childhood summer camp. So from 2014 to 2017, I ran this company. It's like a half a million dollar a year company. I was running it at like 25 years wow. old and got to learn a ton and spend my summers running performing arts overnight summer camps up in the mountains, did a winter camp. I did a couple weekends throughout the school year as like special retreats for particular schools. Uh, hired a bunch of former forensics people to come through there and work and honestly had the time of my life had an amazing time running that camp how did you get into hired judges so tell us about that yeah so that came a couple years later uh 2017 i was done with running the summer camp uh in part uh uh i don't want to say falling out because that's not the right way but i guess diverging goals between me and the founder Mm -hmm. uh I wanted to take the company in a direction I just felt like it wasn't going to go. And so decided to leave and I, I sold my ownership back to him and went into coaching full time and started coaching at DVC, which as I was doing that, I was also coaching um, the local high school. I had reached out to my old high school coach, not the theater teacher, but the actual speech and debate coach who, because we were doing duo in high school, I built a little bit of a, a relationship with. I had also gotten to know her because I did something called Mr. GQ, which is like a, a male beauty pageant in high school. And I did that three years all through <laughs> high school. It, it was a blast. Like I would go up there and 
like I did the uh, I did like a, a Lonely Island rap song as my hidden talent one year and uh, did did all kinds of stuff. So I had a blast doing that. And so I built a relationship with her. So when I came back from grad school, I reached out to her, started helping her with coaching at the high school level. Uh, by 2017, I'd started coaching at the college level again at Diablo Valley College with Robert Hawkins. And one day I was working with Janet Wolford at the high school that I was coaching and she was just so stressed out. She was like, Oh my God, these damn parents, it's in the syllabus. They know that they have to judge. They're supposed to judge a tournament. And this is like September. And she's like, it's the start of the year, people. Why? I haven't called in any favors. How can none of these parents judge? And she was so stressed out about it. And in California, the rule is if you don't have a judge, you don't compete. Right. Right. It's in some States, you just pay a fine. Sometimes you just pay a fine, but most, most leagues here in California, if you don't have a judge, sorry, your kid gets dropped. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know. I just listened to her be stressed out. And I was like, well, that's a problem I can solve. I know thousands of college kids and former competitors that would love to go judge. And she was getting emails from parents saying, well, you know, is there someone I could pay to judge for me? And I just felt like it was a problem I can solve. So I went home that, that day. That was a Friday, sat down on my couch and pulled out my laptop and just started kind of researching some tools and trying to figure out what that would look like. Uh, quick, quick side story. Uh, what? <laughs> Let me think if I want to tell the story. Uh, tell it. Uh, tell it. I had a, a friend uh, staying with me at the time. His, his name's Aaron, and the previous May, he was in love with this girl who had gone back to France, where she was from, and so he couldn't stand being apart from her anymore. Put all of his stuff in a storage unit, sold his or got rid of his apartment, quit his job that he was just about to get a raise at, and moved to France for the summer. And lucked into an amazing time. Ended up being in France when they won the World Cup. This lucky <laughs> son of a gun. But uh, one day in that same September, he just kind of shows up on my doorstep unannounced and is like, "Hey, I'm back!" And then proceeds to live on my couch unannounced for six months. <laughs> so this coincides with me having this idea for hired judge. And I can't, and you know, the, my friend Aaron is also very entrepreneurial, has a million different ideas, uh, but at times lacks follow through. And so doesn't necessarily put that into action. And so to be honest with you, I sat down and started to hire a judge to prove a point to him. Mm. Prove to him like, Hey man, just sit down and do the work and it'll get done, but it's never going to get done unless you do the work. And to be honest, that's been my experience with hired judge the last uh, year and a half now is I can't tell you how many people I've met that have said, yeah, great idea. I was thinking about doing something similar and they just never did. And I, and so I think just having him there to kind of motivate me uh, to build the thing out of spite led me to get the work done. And then once it was done, I released it and it's just has gotten a, a phenomenal response in a year and a half. We've gone to having 700 judges nationwide. We've placed about a thousand judges at tournaments nationwide. Yeah. And uh, right now, I'm working with an investment group to kind of take it to the next level. I got a bunch of new features and uh, not just things judge-related, but I have other tools that I'm developing for the forensics community. For instance, the, the thing I'm really excited about right now is I'm building out a, a tournament finder. So it'll synthesize all these different tournament hosting platforms, tabroom.com, forensicstournament.com, now Yatly, and these other, you know, Speechwire. And so what it does is it puts all those tournaments into one easy to read format allows you to search by what grade level you're looking for, search by what event you're looking for. 
And then the other functionality doesn't that these other sites don't have is it allows people to like a tournament. And that helps demonstrate if you're intending to attend a tournament because hmm. these new coaches, you come in and, you know, even if you somehow find your way to tabroom.com, you know, without someone else guiding you, these new coaches are, are lost. So even if you find your way to one of these tournament posting platforms, you know, there's so much noise and all these tournaments that aren't in your region or not for your grade level or aren't the event that you want to do. And then even if you find the tournaments that, that work for your students, you don't know which ones are well attended. And you don't know what the entries look like until the Wednesday before. Or if it's part of a closed league or something like that. Yeah, yeah, totally. There's a million things that we just, you know, for a new coach, it's so confusing. And so I'm trying to build a tool that helps make sense of that, helps people get an idea of which tournaments are, are going to be well attended, which ones are smaller and whatnot, and just trying to build more resources for the activity. So, with yeah, with our Judge, I'm excited, man. We got a lot of really cool things coming out, um, launching a, like, Hired Judge Pro soon which will allow for background check judges a lot more school districts are requiring background checks now mm-hmm. uh, allow uh, when you hire a judge to have a bio of who they are and what they've accomplished uh, will allow judges to earn a higher rate which will help with like policy and ld judges which they're usually used to earning a higher rate than your average individual event judge so are and, you are you gonna put like on the on the main page like one of those stickers that says like uh you know, background checks now felony free, right? You could do some. Well, I mean, that's the that's the crazy thing, man. Is with these school districts, I, I like I, I call background checks the ticking time bomb of high school forensics. <laughs> yeah, the the truth is, half these leagues all their school district already has a bylaw in place that would make their tournament illegal. Yeah. For instance, the district I coach, San Ramon Valley Unified, has a bylaw that says. No adult is allowed to step foot on any of our campuses unless they've been background checked by the FBI through live scan. And, you know, that's like a three, four week process, which most of these tournaments, they find their judge on the Tuesday before. Right. So you're getting your judge fingerprinted and background checked before a tournament. And most of these tournaments just go on. And I don't know if the administrators are turning their turning a blind eye or they don't know. Or yeah, what's but gonna happen. I think part of that is just like you, you need a rule to point to so that you can you can say like deny responsibility so when somebody says hey uh school district we're holding you responsible because this tournament administration they don't have money for us to sue anybody and then the school district can say well we're going to fire this person because they violated this bylaw but clearly they're not doing anything to really to watch out for that and if they yeah. did, I mean, if they did, I think the forensics community in high school and, and probably even middle school would really start to suffer uh, as a result. But I, I get what you mean. And I think um, I think you're right. I think if they did start doing background checks, it would actually um, it, it, it would start to become a problem for some of their judges because they probably would violate some of those. Yeah, I, that was one of the first questions I got when I started Chassa. Angelique Ronald, the president or sorry, not Chassa, when I started hired judge. Angelique Ronald, the president of Chassa, uh, emailed me and asked if the judges were background checked. And at the time, my response was, uh, as of right now, no. But I've also never been to a tournament that required background checks. So mm-hmm. don't think it's a, a concern. But I, in the past year and a half, I've, I've done a complete 180 that I really think it's a crisis waiting to happen that could shut down whole leagues. Sure. Um, and so re- point is, with Higher Judge, I'm working towards being prepared to fill that need when it becomes a problem that in that between time as school districts will be trying to figure out a protocol for getting parent judges background checked. 
I hope to have judges available so that forensics can continue. Yeah, and it's if for nothing else, it's just a liability issue, right? I mean, uh, oh, for, yeah. on their part to not have that. So. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I think there's a lot of liabilities in forensics that we're, we're turning a blind eye to. Well, uh, Blake, at this point, I want to move over to uh, a next the next section of our interview. Uh, this next part is uh, what I call the final round. And uh, as you know, this, uh, this is 10 questions that we ask every guest who comes on the show. But before I do, I want to mention uh, ForensicsTournament.net. So this segment is sponsored by ForensicsTournament.net. If you're hosting a tournament coming up, uh, we recommend you take a look at ForensicsTournament.net. It's got all sorts of uh, capabilities, new features that are coming out to have online tournaments that are integrated within the platform platform it's uh i use it for a lot of the middle school stuff because it's uh, copa compliant and the child online protection act and uh and it, it complies with all of that which a lot of registration systems don't so you were just talking about having background checks a lot of the uh, tabulation systems are not copa compliant and forensicstournament.net is and so i like to point out if you're going to host a tournament check out forensicstournament.net okay blake you ready for the final round yeah, the only thing I want to say first is I, I'll add on to I also love ForensicsTournament.net. <laughs> I do think it's most user-friendly for tournament directors. Yeah. Whenever I can, I use ForensicsTournament.net. Absolutely. It is the gold standard. Go check it out, ForensicsTournament.net. Okay, Blake, here we go. Question number one. Were you superstitious in speech? Uh, I would say... I'm not a particularly superstitious person, uh, you know, I'm not very like spiritual or re religious, but I will say I had traditions that if I broke, I would consider <laughs> bad. So I don't know if that makes me superstitious, but like what? Uh, I guess the one I would tell is before every nationals, I would make the other men on the team with me, go get a pedicure. <laughs> I believe that, you know, we're going to be standing the whole time. Got to take care of our feet. If you, if you feel good, you'll perform well. So uh, would go get a pedicure, and then personally, I would take the step to get my toenails painted my school colors uh, as well. So if you ever saw me at a national tournament, little known secret, my toenails were painted at that time. That's really interesting. Uh, all right, question number two. Who is the competitor you most admired? Uh, you. Me? Yeah, man. I, <laughs> no, I, I said I'm, I... You're a suck-up. No, honestly, I, I went the big school route and I always really respected people who were doing it on their own, that I had an amazing career, but that's only because I had amazing coaches, right? I'm a, a product of the coaches and a little bit of talent and hard work. Whereas you were doing it on your own, you got to do things your way. And what I really appreciated was that once you, you know, you, you had done it through high school and, and whatnot. So I feel like by the time that I came along and I met you in your junior or senior year, you had your head wrapped around the activity. So you're starting to innovate and doing really cool things. Like the, I believe it was a poetry program or maybe it was a POI with the like choose your own adventure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That one stands out to me. Um, the duo with Sean Bari, uh, all of your after dinner speeches, you know, you're doing comedy that, that you wanted to do. That wasn't necessarily the mold of forensics at the time. Yeah. I think that's why I never really <laughs> won ADS. <laughs> So lesson learned there, but yeah. I mean, dude, the, I mean, the Natalie Syntec joke is all time. <laughs> so uh, I, I can't tell you who the ADS champions were in those years, but I know that Robert Cannon dropped a Natalie Syntec joke. So 
I, I, I think in some ways that's a, a better memory, right? I, For instance, my, I, I would say my crowning achievement isn't anything that I won or any final round or anything like that. It was that my senior year, the NFA ADS final round, three people in the final round made a joke about me and I wasn't even competing. <laughs> that's my crowning achievement. Yeah. That, that's that, how I I had made it in the forensics community. That's that, the compliment. Yeah. If they're, if they're ripping on you. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, just real, real quick. I, a couple other folks I thought of that I want to give a shout out to. Uh, so you for, for innovating and doing your way. And I would also say you and Marcus Hill for being community college competitors that went to the four-year level and showed them what's up, won a national title. Uh, I'm always rooting for community college competitors doing it at that level. Mm-hmm. I also have a ton of respect for, uh, Ryan Cashman from Illinois State. He always just made it look so effortless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when he was at University of Northern Iowa, I think you know he was someone who again didn't have the same kind of resources as as Bradley, and yet he was in final rounds at every single tournament that we went to all year long. Uh, and then lastly, Jacoby Cochran, my teammate, greatest competitor in the history of the activity, and really shaped the way that I view the activity in many mm-hmm. ways. Question number three. What's the most memorable speech or debate you've seen? Yeah, I would say the two speeches that I basically learned what college forensics was that I watched on repeat until I felt like I understood what they were doing and why would be Marlita Hill, Mm -hmm. her, I think, 1995 or 96 ADS. Uh, That one's available on YouTube if you want to go look that one up. To this day, I think her delivery is still some of the best I've ever seen. The argumentation is flawless. Her integration of visual aids is flawless. And so I think that's the speech that I learned how to do platforms by watching. The speech that I learned how to do interps by watching was Javon Johnson. Both those speeches were available on the PSCFA website at the time. So that's those are the only tapes that I had access to, right? So I watched right. them over and over. And so to this day, you ask for most memorable. I, I could probably quote half those speeches. Yeah. Uh, the, the next one that I would mention that's a little bit more contemporary would be... Can I, can I let me jump in? I, yeah, yeah. I, I truly, I think Marlita's speech is not just a great teaching tool. It might be one of the best speeches I've ever seen. And I don't just mean competitively. I mean, truly, that speech is a great speech, even outside of, of competition. And while other speeches like I Have a Dream and things like that are are epic and they, they have this great reputation, there is something about Marlita Hill's speech that is, uh, even just the version that was recorded, captured something so incredible and that performance and the delivery and there's even a couple of flubs in there she even trips over uh-huh. her words a couple times it's it doesn't matter. it's it, uh-huh. yeah you just you don't even care it's incredible yeah I, I couldn't agree more i think it transcends forensics you show it to people who have never seen a forensic speech in their life and they don't have the reaction that they normally do which is like okay this is good but they're doing some kind of you know weird speech right. normal right whereas that which transcends that. You watch the speech, and I think anybody watches it, they they get it, and they're into it. That's it. Yeah. All right, and what was the last thing you were going to say? I cut you off. I'm sorry. Shout out would be Quincy Smith from George Mason University, the 2011 uh, AFA top speaker. I watched him in the CA final that year, and that's when I learned that the vast majority of speeches are won by the end of the intro. That, mm-hmm. Or the vast majority of rounds are won by the end of the intro. Like, and I would imagine as someone who, who judges, you'll probably agree that by the end of the intro, I know. If, so by the end of your first sentence, I usually know if you're top half or bottom half of the round, right? Yeah. By the end of yeah. the intro, I know your rank and rarely do you move more than one point or one rank up or down yeah. after that, right? 
Yeah, I, I talked to um, to a, a previous persuasive champion one time, and uh, Austin Wright, and he was telling me that when he, by the time he watches a persuasive speech, after their second body, if he can guess what their solutions are, then they're done. And while I, I think that might be a, a little extreme, I like that kind of concept that he's thinking about where are you going with this? And if I can outthink you, then you've not really done your job enough. And there's there's some merit to that, I think. But I, I totally agree with what you mean. I, in the first few moments, we already know, okay, this is good or this is trite. And I, and I think there's something to that. So what was Quincy's speech about? Uh, Quincy was a CA. It was about the gay rights organization Bash Back, which is a gay rights organization that will go into churches to do their demonstration and will uh, like bring signs and yell obscenities in the church. And so it was a very uh, like a aggressive organization right? and very like kind of hostile. And so he's analyzing that from a protest perspective. Right. Hmm. And the moment that stands out to me, and I, I apologize for any young listeners about to curse, but the moment that stands out to me is the tagline at the end of his uh, speech. He said, the tagline of the organization bash back bash back and he says as the bash backs website says not queers and happy but queers and fuck you <laughs> and that moment in that round with a silent audience where he hits that moment then just turns and walks to walks to his first main point in silence was really strong and in that moment i felt the same way that jacoby and molly cork who was also watching the round we all kind of turned to each other and we were like well, shit, he just won. Yeah. And to this day, I don't have a single speech from my students that doesn't have some sort of power quotation or power line at the end of the intro like that, because I just think it's a missed opportunity to not have some sort of bring it home end of the intro moment. Sure. All right. Question number four. How do you explain forensics to someone who's unfamiliar with it? Uh, I, I think the same as a lot of people. I, I usually say people... Uh, you know, picture track and field or gymnastics or swimming, because those are usually things that people are familiar with and how they work. They're usually familiar with one of them anyway. And I tell them it's similar to that in that there's a lot of different individual competitors during their own events and how they do in those events eventually add up to some sort of a team score. Mm -hmm. and just like those, just like track and field or gymnastics, there's 14 different events and each one of them spotlights a different skill set of communication. So some events like impromptu, you'll get a prompt, take a minute and a half to two minutes to think about it, and then give a five minute speech on the fly. So that's highlighting the skill set of being able to improvise. Other speeches uh, work on skills like comedic timing and being able to blend humor and rhetoric. That's like after dinner speaking. And then other ones are even like acting, where you focus on skills like storytelling or performance of poetry. So I shape it in terms of that, that there's 14 different events, only three of which are debate. So most people have that perception that all of it's debate when right. reality is a very small part of what we do and is none of what I do, even though the school that I coach, we, we do debate. And I think uh, our debate coaches are fantastic. But, um, you know, a little bit's about about trying to work through that perception of it's all debate and explain, actually, that's only three out of the 14 events that we do. Just a portion. Yep. Question, so number, that kind of narrative, yeah. question number five. What was your most unusual inspiration for a speech? Uh, 
I, I get speech topics from a lot of different places. I'm going to try not to give up any of my, my secret coaching resources. <laughs> uh, okay, I, I listen to podcasts from venture capitalist firms to find informative speech topics. Huh. Because usually venture capital firms are at the cutting edge of new technology before they've even really started the research and development phase or just when they're starting to be promising research coming out. And so by listening to venture capital podcasts, I feel like I'm, I'm usually finding topics a year or two before they're even covered in news articles. Huh. And that's then, so yeah, I'd say that that's like a non-traditional one. I don't know anyone else who does that. I don't know that that's unusual necessarily. Uh, I guess the only other one would be right now I'm cutting uh, Dave, which is a TV show on Hulu by the joke rapper Little Dicky. But so it sounds like a ridiculous piece, but I'm actually cutting a really powerful uh, like buddy buddy story out of it that deals with mental health and bipolar and uh, all kinds of stuff. So that's a, that's a speech, I guess, that you wouldn't assume the TV show Dave is going to make a great duo. But watch out, forensics. 2021. <laughs> I'm excited to see it. Question number six, has a speech or debate ever caused you to change? Oh yeah. All, all the time. Which one? Oh. Give me one. Yeah. I'll, I mean, that's what I come for, man. I feel like that's what I really get out of this activity. You know, the paycheck is nice, but going to tournaments and constantly growing and learning is really what we get out of this activity. And I enjoy that part of it. I love getting info rounds or persuasion rounds or POI rounds because I feel like I'm going to learn something. Uh, specifically, I think the most poignant right now is going to be Daniel Arthur in 2017 with his persuasion about pandemics. Mm. <laughs> Daniel Arthur, whose coach is Shadavari at OCC, they, they called it. You know, They did this speech about pandemics and how we're not prepared for them. And his solution was about... Uh, here's how you properly wash your hands. And hmm. one of the solution steps was him quickly teaching the audience a couple of key steps for washing your hands. I don't know that I do it exactly how I'm supposed to, but I certainly do it more like that. And I do it differently. There's a couple of key things that I learned in there uh, that all through that tournament, what was funny is you'd go into like the men's restroom and you look over at another person kind of washing their hands in this different way. And you'd be like, oh, you saw the persuasion, huh? <laughs> and that that moment a couple times during state that year. And then, sorry, my computer's making noise there. Uh, and so, yeah, to, since then I've washed my hands better because of that speech. And then now in this moment, I especially uh, recognize how important it is. Question number seven, what did you give, do? Give me one second to, to mute this thing so it doesn't keep going off. Sure. Okay, done. Okay, question number seven, what did you do with your awards? Oh, gave him gave him to my mom. Does she and have then, Does she have a shrine built at your home? I I, I gave him to her, and then a couple of years ago, when she moved to a, a new home a little bit further, she gave them all back. She basically met me for dinner. <laughs> one. Yeah, I got a couple boxes in the car. You got to take. Uh, so I I at this point I've gotten rid of pretty much every regular season award. I have a couple from nationals, uh, a couple that mean something to me, like my. Uh, individual sweepstakes awards. I, I treasure those more than like individual finals. Cause mm -hmm. again, I I'm a very team centric guy. Now as a coach, everything I, I do is about the team. Cause I think all the other success is a byproduct. And so really I care about team sweeps. So I, I got a couple around my house. I've thrown the rest out or they're sitting in a box somewhere. Question number eight, 
what speech skill do you use most often in your day-to-day -day life? Uh, I'd say storytelling. Uh, doing, inter doing interp taught me how to tell a story in a way that has clarity for your audience, that is engaging, that gives them enough details to where it feels real and that they, they can picture it and fill in some of those blanks on their own, but doesn't give so much detail that you lose them in the process. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, is funny and engaging and, and relatable. So I, I would say storytelling ability I really gained from forensics. Uh, also comedic timing. And uh, I guess the last would be preparation that to this day, whenever I have like big things, for instance, last year I was interviewing for full-time interviews. And I think the difference between me and other candidates was that I was really prepared that I sat down and made a list and interviewed or asked other people who had gone through the process for, countless questions that they had been asked in their interviews. And I prepped out, you know, full five minute responses to each question that I could imagine. And I, I got that from forensics, that learning that, okay, if I, if I have speech anxiety or if I have some sort of anxiousness around something, the way to do, to get over that is to prepare. Yeah. To I, do the I couldn't agree more, man. The prep on, on being highly competitive is just, it's an unparalleled skill. You're so right. Yeah. Question number nine. Why didn't you quit? Uh, I did. <laughs> uh, after grad school, I, I was done. I was out. You know, I, I, I had to leave. So before then, while I was a competitor, why didn't I quit? I'd say other people. All through community college, I really found a sense of community. I think other people that, that coach or went to community college would agree that it's hard to make friends in community college because everybody comes, goes to class, goes home. There, it's not like at a four-year where you have, you know, freshman orientation activities and everyone's living in the same dorm and whatnot. So for me, at first, I really enjoyed forensics because it felt like it gave me community on campus and I had a group of people that I could hang out with. Uh, by my senior year, like I said, I came back because I felt like I had I needed to redeem myself for losing AFA for us the year before. Right. And I felt like I owed it to the rest of my teammates to to redeem that and help us get over the hump. And I could see that we could win nationals, but I didn't think we could get it done without me. And so I felt like I had to. And then after that, I, I after grad school, like I said, I left. I quit the activity for a couple of years and then just slowly got sucked in. I felt like I needed a, an outlet and needed a creative outlet. And then actually what got me to come back was I went to go visit uh, Fire Pie when I was in California. And as I was sitting there in the hotel lobby, I was having a conversation with, with Javon Johnson of all people. The one time I ever met him, he happened to swing by and we were kept, like, got to know each other. And then Shah Davari was sitting there and he mentioned Robert Hawkins from Diablo Valley College. And he said, you know, Robert Hawkins is doing amazing work and he's one of the only coaches that he's afraid of. Keep in mind, Shaw at this point was putting up his, his second or his third consecutive Fire Pie team championship and was having in the middle of the greatest run in community college forensics history from like 2015 to 19, I think. And here he is my best friend saying the only coach he's afraid of is Robert Hawkins. <laughs> so I don't know if you know this, but Shauna's entire friendship is built on rivalry mm -hmm. and we're incredibly competitive people. It doesn't I th matter. I think, I think that's Shaw's relationship with everyone. Yeah, that, that's fair. But I mean, him and I in particular, man, we, we, this goes back to summer camp. We had broken the summer camp that we were both working at by 
basically dividing the camp into two teams and each night doing a rap battle <laughs> to, to like hype up each of the teams against each other. And then eventually it led to kids like fighting each other because they're on different teams. And so we, we had to shut it down. So point is we're, we're extremely competitive. I, I've always motivated myself by trying to, uh, to, to impress Sean, right. I consider him my mentor and a big brother and he's someone who I, I want to impress and to, you know, his opinion does matter to me, but also to beat him. And through my competitive career, we had identical freshman years. And then after that, my career kind of took off and I, I had outpaced him at every year of my competitive career. So coming back now to this, this Fyro Pie sitting here in the lobby, listening to him say he's afraid of Robert Hawkins while he's in the middle of the, the best coaching run in history. And I'm feeling like, okay, I, my friend is now like, excelled at being a coach time for me to come into this game and see if I can beat him at that game too. And so to be honest, I, I came back to the activity to spite Shaw. <laughs> spite is a good mo- motivator. Yeah, man. 100%. I'm not going to lie that <laughs> it's, it's what works for me anyway. And uh, I, I reached out to Robert Hawkins and said, Hey, I live in the area. I'd love to come by and, and volunteer coach. Sometimes he said, I have a small budget for, uh, a paid coach if you can commit to coming by once a week for like an hour or two i took that that led to me teaching found that i enjoyed teaching much more than i went to or that much more than i thought i would and so uh, in 2017 i left behind the summer camp as i talked about and moved full-time into teaching and haven't looked back since and last year my team beat shadavari's team for the first time and we got to hit each other in a reader's theater final round uh, or sorry, in a semifinal, which as a competitor, I, I never got over the Reader's Theater semifinal at Fyro Pie. Each year, even though we would win state or win Arda, we always got knocked out in the bronze round at Fyro Pie. And so to now be facing my best friend and in some ways mentor in the final round at Nationals or the semifinal rather that I've never gotten through, man, this text thread that's popping off is driving me crazy. Um, to, to now be facing him in the semifinal round and with like team sweeps on the line and my team ended up making it out of that round over his, which catapulted DVC to being the third place team in the country, which is the first time a Northern California team had made the top three in the country in at least 40 years. That's, that's one of the highlights of my career. And that's yeah. really what brought me is, is competing against him. Uh, the last thing I would say is I've really enjoyed working with Robert Hawkins and um, th- that's what keeps me coming back is I, I feel like I've found in some ways like a, a forensic soulmate and that we have very complementary skills and work really well together. And I, I got a lot of love and respect for Robert Hawkins too. Well, I guess the short answer to the question, why didn't you quit is spite. hundred <laughs> percent. That's exactly right. All right. Question 10. This is my favorite question. What was the best speech advice you've ever received? That would come from Ben Loman, who again was my coach at Orange Coast College. And this is in a persuasive speech coaching session. And he told me that the slowest speaker wins the round. And it seems so simple, but has rang true time and time again, that if you go back and you watch big national final rounds, if you were to analyze their word count, I think you would find that nine times out of 10, the person with the lowest word count usually wins the round. I could not agree with that more. Yeah. And as I explained to my students, both public speaking and forensic students, it's because when you constantly remind yourself to slow down, all the other things fall in place too. Right. You start focusing more on facial expressions, on hand gestures, on uh, 
connecting with the audience and your body language. You're giving your brain more time to think ahead. So you're using less verbal filler and making fewer mistakes. And beyond that, it's just easier for the audience. It's hard for the audience to follow someone who's speeding through the speech yes. and to follow along and think and analyze and decide if they agree with you simultaneously. Whereas if you're going really slow and just kind of holding their hand through the whole thing, then most of the time those other elements kind of fall into place. Yeah, I think too people feel like, but I said all these words, I said it all. Yeah, you said it, but how much of it was received by the audience? And a lot of that, they can't receive it because it's just a, you know, a, it's like a fire hose of, of information coming at them as opposed to letting them drink out of the glass slowly, you know? Yeah, totally. And as as a judge, I think you would agree that Oftentimes, it doesn't matter how beautifully the speech is written. If you're not delivering it in the right way, I'm not even going to listen, man. Like it, as a judge, I'm just trying to make, trying to figure out who won this round and who's at the bottom. And so, as I explained to my students, we have to force the judge to critically think. Yeah. That if we allow the judge to say, "Hey, cool speech. Work on hand gestures and on getting better memorized." then if we give the judge that out, they're going to take it every time. Right. But you can get all those things and preempt that ballot. And we do the things that we know the judge is going to say already. Now we're forcing them to actually listen to the speech and to evaluate our argument. And I think a lot of students don't realize that they think that the speech is in itself, everything. And in reality, that's the last thing that's judged. Everything else gets judged before the actual script and topic and writing. And then the other uh, piece of advice that I, I, I really take to heart comes from, again, Jacoby Cochran. He kind of said it offhand one day in a van ride coming back from a tournament in Wisconsin. We had gotten our ballots and a couple of team members are sitting there reading through their ballots. And, you know, and I think you'll, you'll identify with some of your own students or team members that do this, where you get a ballot, judge gave you a four or a five, and you're like, oh, what? Oh, this guy doesn't know anything. Right. Oh, this judge doesn't know what they're talking about. Or, oh, that judge just doesn't like this type of topic. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, I call it kind of the bell curve of forensics that, um, you know, when we start off, our, our ballots are gospel, that mm -hmm. students crave that feedback and they really take it to heart and they put those, that feedback into action. And so we see that rapid growth where students go from being really, really choppy to suddenly being, you know, get, getting a hang of it. And, maybe even breaking into final rounds. But then a lot of people plateau at that point because they feel like they know enough about forensics that they can discount other people's opinion. Yeah. And so the advice that Jacoby said in the van that one day is it doesn't matter if the judge is an idiot or not. They're still the judge. Yeah. And this communication activity, it's all about adapting to your audience. And so it doesn't matter if the, the judge's opinion is wrong because that judge is going to get a ballot again, especially in college forensics. And I need to figure out how to win that judge anyway. Right. And I think the competitors that understand that and take that to heart and make that a part of their, their process of saying, okay, I disagree with this judge, but how can I pick up that ballot anyway? Or, or focus on the other judges, right? Cause I've, I've had a few of those where I'm like, this person I know doesn't like me. I'm never going to win their ballot. So that makes it all the more critical for me to start focusing on the other ones because I just, I can't win this one, but I can focus on the others and I can get through that way. Yeah, totally. And so, it's, so I think I, there's a lot of truth to that, which is like, doesn't, you're absolutely right. It doesn't matter if they're an idiot or not. They have the power and you don't. So you got to deal with it. You got to work your way around. 
Yeah, it doesn't matter if they're an idiot. You're the one who failed to adapt, which is the number one rule of communication. Right, right. You know? Well, Blake, this has been great, man. It's been great talking to you. It's been great hearing about higher judges and your, your history and your past. If people want to find you, where can they get you? Uh, you can find me at hiredjudge.com. That has all my contact information on there, cell phone, email. You can, you can contact me through there uh, or just find me on Facebook or Instagram. All right. And as for us, you can find us on, um, on Instagram and on Twitter. And our handle on both of those is at Forensics Podcast. Hey, Blake, this has been great, man. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for talking to us and, uh, and letting us know a little bit more about your background. Yeah, thanks, man. I always pleasure chatting with you. Always a good time. And, uh, you know, honored to be invited on the show. You've had some amazing guests on the show. It's funny. I, I feel like in, in most rooms that I'm in, I'm one of the more accomplished forensics folks. But when I look down the list of people you've gotten on the show, it's just unreal. Jasmine McLeod, AJ Moorhead, you know, awesome list. So thanks um, so much, man. I appreciate but, it. And I'm glad to have you uh, added to that list. So uh, it's been a pleasure. So thanks so much. Blake. So until next work. round, keep talking. And as Blake Longfellow says, the slowest speaker wins the round. I'm from an actress. Oh, yeah. Cause if you're not